HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Cutting the Curd has been brought to you by Academy Opus Cassius. The Academy Opus Cassius is the cheese industry's unique center for professional development, offering both practical and classroom training in the heart of France. For more information, visit academy-mons.com. That's A-C-A-D-E-M-I-E-M-O-N-S.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, this is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd on Heritage Radio Network with this month's book review segment featuring Tammy Parr, who's written Pacific Northwest Cheese, A History. Hi, Tammy. Hi, Diane. How's it going? Good. Welcome to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. You have written a very scholarly history of Pacific Northwest cheese industry all the way back to the first settlers in the area. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you're going to do a history, you've got to go all the way back to the beginning. <laughs> right, right. This is your second cheese book, right? Yes. Uh, my first book was called Artisan Cheese of the Pacific Northwest, and um, that kind of covered the, uh, you know, the current state, if you will, of cheese making in the region. Um, I talked to the, who was making cheese at that time, mm-hmm. uh, what kinds of cheese were they making, and so on, and uh, gave people a sense of what's out there. Mm-hmm. Can you first tell the audience what got you interested in cheese in general? I understand you had a different career previously. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, I, I really started, um, uh, I was an attorney, and I didn't really love my job. Um, <laughs> and I sort of thought, you know, <laughs> it was kind of at that point where I was like, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, Blogs were just starting to become popular, and I was really into, um, if you remember, the Julie Julia project. Yes. That Julie, Julie Powell was doing about um, cooking her way through um, Julia Child's cookbook. And uh, so I started this blog um, inspired by that, and um, it ended up being about cheese. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I, what did it start out great... being? Did it just start out being about food? Yeah, no, it was about cheese all the way from the beginning. Okay. Um, I was seeing all this great cheese out there in the farmer's markets and in the stores and so on, and I thought, well, what is this? Who's making it? You know, what what is it? And so I, I just started from there. Mm-hmm. And how often did you blog about cheese? You know, it was it was kind of a, a 
slow process. At first, I just um, would pick up a piece of cheese and say, wow, this is, you know, it's beautiful, it's great, it tastes good. You know, what I would try to learn more about, you know, is it a sheep's milk cheese, it was a goat milk cheese. So, you know, my process of education kind of grew along with the, mm-hmm. with the blog. Um, you know, then I started talking to producers. I, I figured, you know, who are these people anyway? Mm-hmm. You know, what are they What are they making? What are they doing? And I um, uh, went from there. At, at a certain point, um, I became kind of the default expert in the region on cheese. Um, so newspapers would call me and say, hey, you know, who is this new cheesemaker? What are they doing? You know, what what do you know about them? And so on. And so I started writing articles, and it, it really grew out of out of that that original kind of mm-hmm. interest in cheese. So the new career just evolved. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. Now, how did you get interested in the history of the cheese industry, at from just being interested in you know contemporary cheese? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it kind of it was a process. I mean, I think what I kind of realized over time was that. We in the, in the kind of the cheese world, we talk a lot about um, the producers, the styles of cheese, and so on. Um, but I, I began to realize it was kind of that stuff is the tip of the iceberg in terms of of, of what's going on out there. Um, I would interview cheesemakers, and they would say things like, "Oh, you know, I, over in you know, I'm I'm in a certain part of uh, Oregon, and you know, I remember this old cheesemaker that I used to, you know, my my family used to get cheese from." Um, 30, 40, 60 years ago, and that kind of thing. And so that kind of began to pique my interest. You mm-hmm. know, oh, who was that cheesemaker? What what kind of cheese did they make? Um, wow. And, you know, the more I probed that, the more I found that cheesemaking goes back, you know, basically way to the beginning of, of uh, you know, white people coming to the Pacific Northwest region. So mm-hmm. it, began to, it, it kind of ballooned um, mm-hmm. from once I started looking into it. Did the second book just follow naturally from the first? Was it your idea or a publisher's idea? It really did follow for me from the first book. Um, yeah, and it was my kind of my extension of my curiosity, I guess, mm-hmm. um, about, you know, I want to know more about cheese. Um, especially, you know, in, in our region we have, in Oregon, um, for example, we have Tillamook cheese, which is a big factory producer, but... Uh, it's also well loved in the region, and um, they go back uh, over a hundred years. Um, mm-hmm. And and you know everyone knows about that and that history. And Tillamook, you know, talks a lot about that history. And mm-hmm. so uh, it's out there. It's just sort of waiting to be discovered, I guess. Right. It seemed like Tillamook was the name that goes back the farthest in your book. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh-huh. Or the uh-huh. current name, um, the name that that is is still exactly, popular. Yeah. Right, and then then they so many cheesemakers. I mean, and this is true across the nation. Came into business, went out of business. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. they they're they're a little point in history, but they haven't survived as long as Tillamook has. So yeah, they're one of the continue to be one of the big players in regional cheesemaking, um, and have been for as I said over a hundred years. Yes, that was one thing that amazed me about the book that there were so many little companies that you discover and write about, and then go out of business for one reason or another. Yeah, it's it's something that I I, I kind of knew, uh, but I didn't really realize. What, which is that we love these cheese factories and cheesemakers, but essentially they're small businesses, mm-hmm. like other small businesses, and um, that goes back, you know, as long as there's been cheesemakers. And it's the economics of it um, are tough, and they've right. always been tough, mm-hmm. and you, you you they don't always make it. Um, right. Right. They're vulnerable to fires and family feuds and all, all sorts of things. things. Yeah. <laughs> yep, exactly. And, you know, and 
there's kind of different parts of the cheese making equation. You have to have, you can make cheese, but you have to have people to eat the cheese. Right. You know? So you have to have consumers. You have to have a way to get the cheese from, you know, your farm or your factory to the consumer. You know, so it's, it's a whole chain of events. And if mm-hmm. one of those parts breaks mm-hmm. down, it's, it's, um, it's over. <laughs> mm-hmm. The book encompasses centuries of history. How long did the research take and how did you do it? The research, um, let's see, I'm, I'm going to say a couple years, two, two and a half years or so of uh, research. And uh, it, it's a com- research is kind of a, a fluid, organic thing that I, I found, at least in my um, experience. It's You never quite know where it's going to come from, uh, where you're going to find little nuggets of information. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and at least in the Pacific Northwest, um, you know, our the history of the region as, as a whole in terms of um, when Europeans came to the region and so on, only goes back to, you know, uh, the early 19th century, late 18th century, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the East Coast, which would be much, much longer. So in some ways, that made it a little easier. The time time range was a little shorter. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you look in old newspapers, you look at um, old uh, archives that are kept in university, mm-hmm. you know, university special collections, Right, um, I was I wondering, did was a lot of it on the Internet yeah. or not yet? No, not at all. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe there are, you can find pictures. You know, the Library of Congress has just, you know, tons and tons of, of information. And some of that is pictures of old factories and so on from, from all different states. That's really helpful when people put things on the Internet because, <laughs> mm-hmm. of course, that makes it a lot more accessible. But, um, uh, you know, research is... is just such an interesting fluid thing. You never know what you're going to find, and, and mm-hmm. when you do find it, it's, it's, very, it's very exciting. You know, and in some cases, I was able to talk to, um, there are family members that, you know, maybe several generations removed from a particular cheesemaker in my book. Um, mm-hmm. For example, the, the Castrilli family, um, there are some that I talked about in, uh, I want to say, Chapter 5. There are some family members that are still around, so they had, I, I managed to track them down. Mm-hmm. Um, they had old, old family photos, um, mm-hmm. labels from the creamer, you know, all kinds of stuff. So mm-hmm. things like that, uh, you just never know when you're going to find someone who knows mm-hmm. something or a document that knows something, you know, that says something. Yeah. Did you travel a lot around the states? I did, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho to different mm-hmm. Again, different um, libraries and special collections, um, mm-hmm. historical societies. You know, often uh, counties will have their own, you know, historical society mm-hmm. where they've families have donated papers and so on. So I wanted to make sure I covered as many bases as possible. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there was a fair amount of travel to okay. that. And what was the hardest part to research and to write of the book? <laughs> you know, probably... Uh, it, the, the, the maybe the older the history the harder mm-hmm. uh, to you know to find um, mm-hmm. in that sense uh, well Hudson's Bay Company research uh, that I covered in chapter one um, they made the first cheese in the Pacific Northwest um, uh, and this goes back to the 1820s 1830s um, um, thankfully they kept really good records uh, so so they have <clears throat> they have inventories of all the animals that they kept on the farms here in here in Pacific Northwest. They mm-hmm. have ship records of the, what they exported to England and mm. to the Russians, and they have all kinds of stuff. But wow. sorting through that, it's all in microfilm. So sorting through, <laughs> sorting uh. through that, that was a little bit painful. Um, 
but thankfully, it, you know, it was there. And now, you know, I'm, I had no idea that they had such an extensive farm operation here in, in, in Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was really quite incredible. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's something you wouldn't know unless you spend the time. Right. Right. Through it, you know that's what historical research is about. Right, or read the book. Were you a history yeah. major <laughs> back in college? No, I was an English major. Okay, but, uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> that's close. Did you take <laughs> a lot of history courses? Um, I, I, as I recall, yeah, I did, and it's something that's it kind of fascinated me um, mm-hmm. all, all my life. Um, but I've never really spent quite so much time on it as <laughs> I did here. What were the most fun parts to write or the easiest to research or write? Yeah, it's so many parts were so interesting, and even parts that I didn't even know were going to be interesting. Right. So, you know, for example, I'm researching, uh, say, uh, for example, the blue cheese makers um, started happening in the 30s and 40s. Um, You know, uh, once I started probing that, I started to find out, how, you know, the U.S. United States Department of Agriculture had to go back and kind of reinvent how to make blue cheese because mm-hmm. uh, when that came over from Europe, um, the cheese makers didn't know how the mechanism of blue cheese making worked, and so mm-hmm. they had to figure all that out. And, I mean, I didn't know any of that, but right. once you sort of, you know, start to look into one thing, it, it opens up. It leads to um, some more topics. Right. Same with uh, the I talk about canned cheese, which was a big mm-hmm. thing also in the, the 30s. Um, you know, and um, you know, who knew that that was supposed to be the technology that was going to change the industry um, at the time? But right. of course, then plastic was invented, and that all kind of went down the hole. But mm-hmm. uh, these little little tidbits that you come upon are just fascinating. And, and you know, you get a little sort of thrill, <laughs> inner thrill of like, wow, really? Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> and that, that's just kind of cool. Mm-hmm. How is a study like this funded? Did you get a contract ahead of time? I did. I got a book contract ahead of time. Um, I, you know, wrote a proposal and that kind of thing. Um, um, they gave me a small advance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, a lot of that is um, my own personal, you know, drive to get it done. Mm-hmm. And now, mm-hmm. now, of course, comes the marketing of the book. Right, and right the sales uh, on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. How did you decide, um, as I was reading the beginning especially, how did you decide how much explanatory non-cheese history had to be in it so that it could frame the cheese part? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good question. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I hope that I achieved a balance, but I wanted to both talk about cheese and the progression of cheese making in the region, but uh, but I felt like you can't just do that. You have to situate it also within the region itself. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, why were people here in the first place? Right. How did the you know people came over the Oregon Trail? Um, mm-hmm. You have to talk about that kind of stuff, or else just saying so and so made cheese for ten years, and then mm-hmm. later someone else made cheese for ten years. You know, that's sort of right, um, right. Well, especially reading it from the East Coast where, you know, everybody studies their state history. So my knowledge of Oregon history is pretty, you know, slim. So I really needed a lot of that pioneer stuff to place it in a context. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. I'm glad it's helpful. And, I mean, even I wasn't up on, you know, every aspect of Pacific Northwest history. So it was really instructive for me. I mean, just in terms of the growth of the region and the, the 
how important agriculture was to the mm-hmm. region. Um, mm-hmm. It was kind of eye-opening. Mm-hmm. Okay, Tammy, we have to take a break now. We're talking to Tammy Parr on Cutting the Curd about her book, Pacific Northwest Cheese, A History, and we'll be back in a few minutes. Thanks. You are listening to Radio Ra by Obesity on the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The Academy Opus Cassius is the cheese industry's unique center for professional development, offering both practical and classroom training for cheese professionals ready to move their careers to the next level. When you come to learn at the Academy, we instill our love for cheese, our expertise, and our experience so that you can support artisanal producers, impeccably care for the fine cheeses you carry, and serve your customers with skill and enthusiasm. We integrate hands-on practice, formal instruction, and classroom discussion in all of our courses. The Academy's programs are offered at the Mons Fromagerie in the heart of France, where cheese undergoes affinage and cheeses are received, prepared, and shipped. Several Mons retail shops are nearby. The surrounding countryside is the home to producers whose excellent cheeses are cared for by the Mons team. The Mons cheese business has more than 50 years' experience caring for and teaching about cheese in France, a country known as the source of some of the world's greatest cheeses, deepest cheese tradition, and the highest level of technological research and rigor in cheese making and ripening. The Academy has been recognized by the American Cheese Society as the first approved education center for those preparing for the certified cheese professional exam. Enroll now for Essential Foundations for Cheese Professionals or Affinage, the Art and Science of Maturing Cheese. For more information, visit www.academy-mons.com That's A-C-A-D-E-M-I-E-M-O-N-S.com Certified Cheese Professional is a registered trademark of the American Cheese Society. Hi, it's Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd. I'm back with Tammy Parr, who wrote a book called Pacific Northwest Cheese, A History. Hi, Tammy. We're back again. Hi, Dan. So um, what we were saying before the break, what I, what I found really refreshing was the whole story of the pioneers and the settlers coming across our gigantic country and how, of yeah. course, survival was immediately dependent on the food supply. Uh, did you feel the settlers were misled about what they were, the trip or what the conditions were going to be when they arrived? Uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, there's, there, there's no question. Um, especially, you know, there were uh, people um, advertising how great the Pacific Northwest was and mm-hmm. it just came over, you know, it'd be the sort of the land of milk and honey. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, once they got here, there was nothing here and they had to build their own houses, they had to, you know, build their own farms and lives. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, many of them were not in any way equipped to do that. So, right. Uh, like when people first came to the East Coast, you know, into Jamestown and all of that, it was right. sort of like starting from scratch. Mm-hmm. Were you were you right about um, many bringing animals? Um, did Correct. they expect the trip to be easier and that the animals <laughs> all would survive? It's it's really remarkable um, uh, that they you know big herds of cattle, um, goats. Um, uh, I cannot imagine what the thinking was because, you know, 
they're driving these animals across the plains. They're right. driving them across rivers. You know, in big hordes. You know, just right. drive them in the river and hope for the best. You know, <laughs> it's three thousand <laughs> miles. <laughs> unbelievable, but yeah. Um, so what ended up happening is, you know, along the way of the Oregon Trail, brokers would appear and they would take tired cattle, you know, feed them, kind of resuscitate them essentially, and then mm-hmm. they would resell them to people farther down the road. You know, mm. so a whole system developed uh-huh. of kind of making making it work. But right. I, yeah, I think people were really just not prepared for the, mm-hmm. the, the amount of time it would take, the distance, and what would be required of them. No right. way. Right. Um, another issue that pops up throughout is uh, the, that fluid milk makes more money for the farmers than cheese. But today, right. uh, it's the opposite. Correct. So when does it, that change and, and why? Do you? That's a good question. You know, I think that was sort of a, a, a artifact of the times, I guess you could call it, mm-hmm. um, because what was happening... Uh, early in the kind of the history of the Pacific Northwest is that there was just only so much milk. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of competition for that milk. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Cheesemakers were competing for it. There was also a big condensed milk industry that was competing for the milk. Mm-hmm. Um, the Carnation condensed milk started in the state of Washington. Um, and fluid milk, which mm-hmm. was becoming increasingly popular in the early 20th century. And so everybody wanted a finite piece of milk, you know, mm-hmm. essentially. And mm-hmm. and so it, it was just competition. And uh, fluid milk would, would typically win. And, mm-hmm. you know, it just depended on the situation and the region and how much milk was available. But, now, uh, now, is that because historically people were into fluid milk first? No, actually, the the consumption of fluid milk is, is really recent mm. in terms of um, United States history. Yeah, it really began in the kind of the mid, mid-ish 19th century. Okay. Uh, and that's a whole, people have written books on, on that, too. It's really interesting um, why people start drinking milk. Hmm. I'll have to check that out. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it just was puzzling to me because, you know, now we all talk about cheese being a value-added product. And right. it, it clearly wasn't. It was like the, you know, the third yeah. reason to use milk. Right. Exactly. And, yeah. and many of your cheesemakers you write about go out of business because they can't get milk. Correct. Um, you mean um, today's cheesemakers or in well the past? now now okay. it's value added product yeah I'm talking about in the past correct mm-hmm. hmm. correct it, it was really that 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 competition for milk um, and uh, you really did what you can and if you didn't play the play the times right you were you know that was your, your mm-hmm. business and you were out of it mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about the percentages of cow goat and sheep milk or or the animals and the cheese making and how that evolved historically sure um uh, really uh, cow's milk has always really kind of dominated um cheese making at least in the pacific northwest and mm-hmm. i would guess that's probably the case nationally too um mm-hmm. Cows, I mean, and the reason is cows, because cows produce more milk. A farmer can make more profit off of, you know, a cow versus mm-hmm. a goat or a sheep. Um, that's pretty much always been the case. Um, and we see, you know, we see that today. So in the Pacific Northwest today, um, what what you see in terms of the artisan she's making, at least, is you see uh, primarily cow's milk cheeses being made, although goat's milk is close behind in terms mm-hmm. of artisan cheese making. Mm-hmm. Sheep, very few, mm-hmm. um, although you know, that's kind of an emerging 
trend in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, now, goat's milk typically was not um, much of a much of a factor in, in the early 20th century in terms of uh, you didn't see a lot of goat, goat's milk cheeses out there. Mm-hmm. Um, although that that did evolve, um, and it's become much more popular now. Mm-hmm. Um, now, mm-hmm. what you've seen is these small farmers uh, who, are, who are starting up and saying, you know, uh, I don't have any experience with animals, but I want to I want to kind of start a small farm and support you know myself make a wholesome product. I can I can uh, keep goats. They're easier to keep. They're you know easier to feed. They're smaller, easier to handle. Etc. And so goat's milk, you know, is, is increasing in popularity, and goat's milk cheeses obviously are are, are everywhere now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about the original farmers' markets out west and how they influenced the cheese industry in the past? That was something that I, I really had no idea about, and um, it was one of those little cool nuggets of information. Exactly. That I, that I yeah. Discovered. Yeah. Um, so you know, I mean. Uh, when you have a, a whole bunch of farmers trying to sell a product, what, what evolved were these kind of um, the system of brokers mm-hmm. who would kind of go around and uh, want to buy up people's products and resell them to wholesalers. Um, you know, and then sometimes they would take advantage of farmers and they would, you know, uh, give them way too little money for their product or sometimes steal it, sometimes, you know, manipulate their way through a situation. And so uh, what got to happen is that, you know, condensing this, you know, very, very, <laughs> in a very short um, uh, story, that they, uh, farmer's markets, you know, kind of started in the early 20th century as a way for farmers to have a direct connection with consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see the Pike Place Market in Seattle, which uh, many people have been to or, or might know about, um, uh, started as a way for farmers to, like I said, um, you know, have a direct mm-hmm. connection with consumers, sell their products, and you know, make the money that they mm-hmm. felt was due them and not have to go right. through. So to control the price them. more and to knock exactly. out the middleman. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, that became a really big deal. Um, now, once farm, once uh, factories started getting bigger and bigger and factory cheesemaking became the norm, mm-hmm. um, farmers' markets kind of fell out of favor. Right, right. I, I, that was um, what was interesting to me, that they sort of bloomed and then died a bit. And now they're back. Right. Was it the grocery it store? That's another thing you write about that was another cool nugget of information, as you say. Was the grocery store starting and how that yeah. was, a, you know, an innovation at first. That's right. And, and consumers, uh, you know, slowly started, you know, it became so convenient to go to a grocery store, as it is, you know, today. You go right. to a grocery store, there's the milk, there's mm-hmm. the cheese, there's the produce. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to go to... A number of different farmers, or a number of different farmers' markets, or, right. or whatever. And the butcher, and the exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And so um, that drove people. That contributed to driving people away from the farmers' markets. Right. So, so the grocery stores came in at near the end of the farmers' market and put the nail in the coffin. Correct. <laughs> uh, was one of the yeah you could say that was one of the contributing factors for sure. Um, and farmers' markets didn't disappear by any means. Right. But, yeah, the the incredible popularity in the early 20th century um, dropped precipitously. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what um, I, then, I find oh, interesting sorry, about all these history books is that it's um, you put the uh, progress into a historical perspective and some of the advances that we now demonize, like industrial cheese or boring grocery stores, were actually right. good news progress with positive valences back in the old days. 
That's right. That's really true. Um, and they they look different in when you look back in, in the context of what they where they appeared, and that sort of makes what they are now look a little different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it gives you a more positive framework for how they came about and and why they were great to start with, even though they might not still be great. Exactly. It's like I was saying earlier. Is you know what we see now is kind of the tip of the iceberg, and the context is often really interesting and complex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you see as the most important issues affecting the artisanal cheese movement now in the present? What problems do you think we need to address? Well, clearly food safety is huge right now. Um, um, and, you know, the uh, what's going on with the FDA and what what uh, regulations might may or may not be coming out, you know, in the future. Um, I think cheesemakers are at least from what I can tell in the Pacific Northwest, are, you know, they're worrying about that, worrying about uh, what they're going to do, how they're going to uh, conform their operation to what, uh, you know, is going to be required mm-hmm. to be licensed. Mm-hmm. It's their livelihood and it's their business, you know, and they want to keep going. So that's a big one. Mm-hmm. Now, I think I remember reading about Idaho, where they oh, had, yeah. um, which I found fascinating, where they had um, different rules for smaller farmers. Well, you know, I mean, there's part of the uh, issue of regulation in cheesemaking is you have the federal rules and you have specific individual state rules, and those Mm -hmm. are kind of intention, Mm -hmm. and I don't think that the interplay between those two has been really resolved, and it needs to be seen how that will happen, but Idaho has kind of a unique um, way of regulating raw milk. Um, is it still people, it's still going on? Yes, it does. Ah, uh-huh. I didn't know Correct. that. Uh huh. This is just within the past. Uh, you know, I, I want to say three or four years that this, oh, okay. this rule started. Yeah, and so you can, as a small, there's certain rules about the number of animals and you know how mm-hmm. big you can be and so on. But if you fall in that niche, you can make raw milk cheese, sell it commercially, without. Uh, you know, having a grade A license like most cheesemakers have. Hmm. Okay. Um, so, you know, so what I mentioned in the book is you can go to a store in Idaho, buy a fresh raw milk chef aged less than 60 days, and it's legal to sell, uh-huh. you know, in, in theory at least, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in Idaho. Uh, and, you know, that's not something you'll see anywhere else in the country. Right. Uh, at least I'm not aware of. Yeah. And another bizarre thing about Idaho is that you say that it's the third um, biggest uh, cheese state. Correct. Which yeah. I did not know huge, either. Yeah, huge, huge. Um, the, so that would be industrial. Idaho. That would be industrial cheese if it if it's Correct. up that yeah, high. Yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Correct. Um, yeah, there there are fewer than ten artisan cheesemakers in Idaho, but the the, the industrial. Plants are enormous. Okay. Um, uh, in Gooding, Idaho, there's a plant that's supposed to be the largest in the world. Huh. You know, I don't know. Um, okay. Yeah, so Who it's knew? a big, big deal. <laughs> okay, well, I want to <laughs> thank you, Tammy. It's been great to talk about your book. I have a lot of more questions that we don't have time for. And um, it's it's been great to discuss the Pacific Northwest Cheesa history. And I'll be back on February 24th interviewing Janet Fletcher about her newest book, Cheese and Beer. And I want to thank my engineer, Joe Galarraga, and this has been Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thank you, Tammy, and uh, good afternoon. Thanks, Diane. Bye.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>